no matter what disasters may occur in other parts of the world, or what petty little problems arise in Atlanta, no one can find us up here. Good night, Lewis. Scott, I got to say something about dueling banjos. Um, first of all, dueling banjos is the name of my fantasy football team for anybody that's keeping score at home. Um, I don't really know what that means, but it'll tell you that it's this is one of my uh, most favorite movies. But did you know that dueling banjos was it won the 1974 Grammy Award for best country instrumental performance and it sat four weeks at number two on the Billboard Hot 100. Did you know that? You know, I, because I was at the time, I was about 14 years old. So I was, I was tracking stuff like that. And so I was, I, I hadn't seen the film yet, but I knew it was from a big Hollywood movie, but I didn't, I didn't have any clue when I hear that, like, what mo- kind of movie is this from? Um, because it didn't, it didn't seem to, to align with anything I'd ever heard about the movie Deliverance, which I knew was an acclaimed film, but I was, I thought it was fascinating. It was great. And everybody, everybody recognized that, that, that song when they heard it. I can't believe that there was like a point in time in, in history of entertainment that dueling banjos actually got played on the radio. That's, that's, that is, um, that's hard for me to sort of wrap my head around, but I, I guess that was definitely the case. Welcome back, Scott. You were on the show back in May, uh, when we talked about Top Gun with, uh, Nick Malone and, and my brother, Jim Kamlick. I got to tell you, it was only a matter of time before I asked you back. I think I halfway through that recording of that episode, I just kept saying to myself, man, I got to have Scott back. Like I got to do a one-on-one with him. And I had always wanted to have you on the show regardless, but talking movies with you, I think you and I both sort of know that maybe if we didn't have any other professional obligations in our life, we probably would be doing this full time. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, when we were having that Top Gun conversation, I was like, Oh my God. I had almost a, the, a similar thought about midway through. I was like, I wish I could do this all the time. I mean, just to, just to talk kind of seriously about film and, and, and talk about it, what it meant culturally and what it meant, you know, to me personally, everything. It was, it was, it was an outstanding experience. I'm really glad we did it. And it sort of prepped me really well to, to see Top Gun Maverick uh, the next week. Did you ever think that you'd ever do a podcast in your life about the movie Deliverance? <laughs> No, no. But the moment you reached out to me about it, I was thrilled because the one thing that I really uh, feel is sort of lost to, to, to audiences today is serious conversation about that, 
that that period of American film where 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 big studios were making serious movies for adults, and um, that era has passed, I think. And uh, but it was a brief moment, probably from like around 1968 to around 1975, before the blockbuster movie sort of came in as the big you know dominant discussion in Hollywood. But there was a period about seven or eight years there where people made for studios greenlit these very serious movies that were literally meant for adults, not, you know, four quadrant movies or not for teens or not, you know, no, they were meant for adults. And this is one of those films. Yeah. So I actually, I'm so glad you said that. I want to get into that in a second. Before we get started, I guess, you know, quick housekeeping, remind everybody who you are, um, how you and I know each other. I th- we've covered this previously a little bit. So, okay. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Scott Safon. I've spent about hmm, 40 years total in the world of media marketing and you know, marketing consulting. Uh, but there was a, a period of about 25 years there uh, in the 90s and 2000s where I worked for Turner Broadcasting or what was then Turner Broadcasting. Uh, half that time, I was the head of marketing for TNT in the 90s. And then uh, in 2002, I became the chief marketing officer of CNN and uh, did that for a long time. And then I ran one of their networks, HLN. And it was during that time, probably around 2010, I was the chief marketing officer of CNN. And I got a chance to interview somebody who was coming through the the interview system at Turner to run uh, all of our media planning and buying and media strategy for all the Turner networks. And, and I got to meet you through that process, Dennis. And I was like, wow, this guy knows a lot about the entertainment industry, knows a lot about marketing, knows, uh, knows a lot about media. And I just enjoy talking with him about movies and movie posters and everything. You know, we had a lot of uh, mutual interests and I was thrilled that that you joined Turner at that time and we got to work together. It was the best interview I've ever had in my career. I, I truly mean that. And I was also sort of sad when it was over because it went by so fast. <laughs> and, you know, we were talking about the job, obviously, but talked a lot about other things. And I, I just I just found you fascinating. When I left your office, I was like, man, I really hope I get this job because I got to work with this guy. Like this guy is, um, he's unlike anybody I had ever met at that point in my career. So, you know, long story short, got the job and you and I got to work together for several years before, you know, we both moved on to different things, but, um, I'm thrilled that you and I have stayed in touch through these years and, you know, got you on the show. And, um, I just, you're, you're a phenomenal guest and I'm, I'm really excited to, uh, so talk deliverance. So I could just hear the people turning off this podcast right now because it's deliverance. I, I can't promise you that we're going to get a ton of listeners, Scott, because it's it's deliverance. Dennis, why, why do you say that? Do, do you think people have a negative connotation with the film or they just have a because I would say that that it, that, that we will have people who be excited about that a, a, a conversation is going on about deliverance because they vaguely know about it or they've seen it. And then a bunch of people who've never heard of it before and go like, why are they devoting a whole podcast to this movie I've never heard of? But you think it's you actively going to turn some people away. Why is that? There's two layers to what you just said. I'm going to, I'm going to break that apart because I love that you just said that. So thank you. As I knew you would. One is doing deliverance is the exact reason why I'm doing this podcast and why I I've sort of pivoted over the last six months to focus more on film because it allows me to, you know, shine a light on films that I think people need to either see for the first time um, or even revisit, you know, and, and I'm sure you, re- you revisited Deliverance for this episode, as did I. And um, I think that that just it just makes me smile. I really enjoy bringing a certain movie back to the forefront and allow us time to talk about it for an hour, an hour and a half. However, I guess the reason why I feel like we're going to get eight listeners is because. 
there's I always feel like deliverance has a bit of a stereotype, right? It's it's one of the it's one of the things that's kind of bugged me about this film is that it's the it's the squeal like a pig movie, it's the dueling banjo movie. And obviously you and I both know that this film has so much more depth than that. It, this is a film that was nominated for Best Picture in 1972 and it has pretty incredible themes, but I feel like on the surface level that's all people take from it. It's the Ned Beatty squeal like a pig movie. Do you think you sort of see where I'm coming from, right? I do. I mean, there are people who think of The Exorcist as the movie where, you know, you know, uh, pea soup gets vomited on Ellen Burstyn. I mean, it, 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 it's sometimes the most, uh, you know, extraordinary moments in a film become, you know, define the film. And um, I, I can't tell you the number of times I've said to people, I've said to my own, you know, adult children, you have to watch the film. Just watch the film because when you see the movie in its entirety, you're going to have a completely extraordinary experience. And because they don't, you haven't seen a movie like this before. And I say that about Deliverance, but I do think I think you're right. The the, the squeal like a pig or the dueling banjo stuff, which is two of the most memorable moments in the film, are um, you know do define it for some people. But all I you know when I when I when I talk one to one to somebody about a film like Deliverance. I, I want to grab them by the lapels and say, you have, just please watch it again. Watch the first 20 minutes. And if you're not there for the rest of it, fine. But 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 definitely watch some of it. I, I had a I had a blast revisiting it. And obviously, this is not a film that I need to watch over and over again. I've seen it so many times. I, I know it almost like verbatim. I mean, Deliverance is a signature work of the 70s, as you said earlier, when studios were making daring films like this before it all sort of changed with, I guess, Jaws and, and everything else after that. And it's celebrating its 50th anniversary this year, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to get this conversation in before the end of the year. I think it's funny that you happen to live in Atlanta because that's where the guys in the film live when they when they go away for the weekend, but they're all guys and businessmen from Atlanta. So you were 14 when the movie came out. You didn't see it when you were 14, but help me understand like where where and when you first saw this film and I will do the same. So I was actually, I was 14 when, when Dueling Banjos was hitting the uh, Billboard Top 100. I, when the movie came, the movie came out about a year and a half before that. Um, and so I was 12 when the movie came out and I knew I was following the movie industry and I was following, you know, what was being talked about as big, important movies. It was a rated R movie. That's how I re- remembered hearing, you know, no, knowing that it was a big, important film and I would not get a chance to see it. And, and R rated movies were not, uh, not available to me given my parents' rules. And so I, I knew that uh, someday I'd hope I would find a way to see deliverance. And what happened was that we were one of the first, we were one of the first households. I grew up on Long, out on the eastern end of Long Island and we were one of the early households to get HBO. And we got it, I think, in 1975. And Deliverance was on HBO. So I snuck up late at night and my parents were asleep <laughs> and I watched Deliverance. And of course I got to see on television an unedited version of Deliverance. And I was I was knocked out by it, but it was, it was incredibly disturbing to me. Um, <clears throat> like the themes in the movie, the scenes in the film, the, 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 the sheer tension that builds up through the film. So I was about 15 years old, a 15 year old guy seeing this, this movie with this horrifying rape scene and this really scary story about survival and savagery and, you know, in the backwoods of Georgia. And I just thought, 
wow, this, this, the movie riveted me and it also upset me tremendously. And I realized though, as I was watching it, it's like, this is, this is a, this is a very serious movie and I'm really, really privileged that I got a chance to see it. And then I also thought, I hope to see it on a big screen one day. And that didn't happen for like another 10 years. Uh, first of all, I love the fact that you were already following the industry at that age. Um, you're just like me, Scott. It's unbelievable. We're, we are both like, I was f- following the entertainment industry far at a younger, much younger age than I probably had any right to. Um, but I had no idea that HBO was even around in 75. That's awesome that that's when you saw it. You saw it on HBO. Very cool. I saw it in uh, when I was at the University of Maryland. It was the fall of 91. So I guess that would have made me, um, I guess, a junior. Uh, and uh, I saw it at the Hoff Theater, which was the, the theater at the at the Stamp Student Union. And um, I was a member of the film committee there. So our job at the film committee was to set up a variety of movie screenings at the theater throughout the year, um, different festivals and, and things like that. So I was always kind of around the theater. And I remember going to a movie one night and they showed the trailer for Deliverance. And I'm at, I'm at this point, I'm probably 20 years old. And, um, and I guess it was going to be playing a midnight screening in a couple of weeks. So I saw this trailer and I'm like, what is this? And I have to admit it. Like I hadn't heard of the film and, um, and I saw this trailer and I remember like the trailer was really fascinating. Like they show these four guys and they're going on the canoe. Everything looks really fun. And, and they're playing the banjo music. It's like a really lovely, you know, Saturday. And then all of a sudden, like they freeze on John Voight and like, there's this really, you know, striking music that they play. And all of a sudden you realize that something isn't quite right. And then they freeze on Burt Reynolds and, and the other actors, Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox. And then, you know, and like, and the people in the audience, when they're watching this trailer with me, they're all kind of like, like laughing and clapping. Like I felt like I, w- I, I was missing out on something. And, uh, but I made a mental note that this was a movie that I needed to go see. I was like, I'm going to totally go see this midnight screening when it comes out in a week or two. And I did. So the screening comes along. I'm, you know, I'm watching the film. And like people are like clapping during it. They're like engaging with it while, while we were watching it and clear, it almost sort of felt like I was watching a Rocky horror presentation and people were really getting into like, you know, the hillbilly characters in the movie. And, and, um, and and then obviously like then the rape scene happens, which we're going to get into later, but I, I knew nothing about this movie and it had a profound impact on me at that point in time. It, It was like it was something I found myself thinking about for, for days and days after the fact. And I quickly, you know, I bought this movie on VHS. I bought this movie on DVD years later. I got it on Blu-ray. I have it on 4k Blu-ray. I mean, I am one of those guys. I, this film um, became very in very short order, became a top 10 all timer for me. Wow. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away by that story because I think that I had not revisited the movie until this. I mean, I had seen it in college. It was shown in, in, in at uh, the, in the film series uh, at my college. And so I went to see it. So I got to see it in the big screen and, but the people who were going to see it, it was probably like a Tuesday night during the semester. And so it was, you know, all people in film classes and stuff like that. So they treated it very seriously. We, I did not have a Rocky Horror Picture Show-esque uh, encounter with the film. Um, but then the next time I saw it, I saw it one other time, I guess, over the years, on probably on a streaming service. And then I watched it again on a streaming service, uh, I think on Netflix, um, just like with, uh, three weeks ago in, in preparation for this discussion. I found it 
each time I found it incredibly upsetting, incredibly engaging, um, and just a riveting movie. And I, it, it, it played with my head a little bit. And, um, that's you've watched it a bunch of times and I, I find that fascinating. But the fact that I got to see deliverance for the very first time on the big screen, I was very lucky that I was able to do that. Cause I can't say that for, you know, all movies, particularly movies from that time when I was too young to see them theatrically. Um, but I remember seeing the 40th anniversary screening at the Fox theater when, when you and I were living in Atlanta together, I, the Fox theater in Atlanta brought it there, um, you know, and I got to see it then. And then later that year, um, you know, Warner Brothers did a 40th anniversary screening at the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival in L.A., which I was able to go to because TCM was one of our, you know, one of my clients at Turner. And um, I got to see the screening there and they brought out Burt Reynolds and Ned Beatty and John Voight. The Turner Classic Movies Film Festival is a little aside. I mean, they usually do these anniversary screenings and 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 do their best to get the, the surviving cast members there. And it's always I mean, I one of my favorite movies is Cabaret. And they had the the, the original cast of Cabaret there for the for the 50th Um or the, I guess it was the 40th. And um, it was ex- an extraordinary experience. I'll never forget it. Deprived of being able to see films like this in the theater when they came out. I was too young, right? But like, just like going back into the early 70s and looking at the, when these movies came out, as you talked about at the start, like movies like The Godfather, movies like The God, The Conversation, The French Connection, mm-hmm. you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws. I, I can't even imagine like being in my mid-20s or my mid-30s when movies like that came out and I would be able to, see stuff like that in the theater. That's just not, that's not an experience I ever had. And I'm jealous that you, you sort of did, right? Well, I sort of was on the cusp of it. So there were a few of those movies I got to see, but, but um, in the theater, I, I saw a lot of them in theater when I got to college, because they would show movies like Carnal Knowledge and Chinatown and movies where I was technically too young to see. I was born in 1960. So when these were, I was 14 or 15 again, yep. was growing up in a community that had pretty strict, uh, guidance about R-rated films. And I desperately wanted to see these films. I managed to sneak into a, produ- a, a showing of The Godfather and The Godfather 2, though, thank God. Um, but those movies are, are actually pretty easy to see on the big screen at this point because they're brought back so much. But it is different. It is I have to say that the theater-going experience when you go in to see a movie like like those films that you just mentioned, like Chinatown, you, that's a different experience than everybody piling into a theater to watch one of the Marvel films or, you know, a big comedy or something. It's when you're going in for a serious, a serious encounter with, with narrative art is just, is awesome. It's based on the best-selling 1970 novel by James Dickey, who actually has a cameo in the film. And we're going to, we're going to talk about, him in a few minutes directed by John Borman, um, acclaimed filmmaker was made shot on a budget of only $2 million, I guess probably considered a lot in the early seventies. Um, it was released on July 30th, 1972. So it just hit its anniversary a few months ago. Um, it grossed $46 million worldwide. Deliverance was the fifth highest grossing film of the year, which I, I never knew until I started doing the research that it actually had done that well that year. Um, yeah. The other, the other four films that were better than that were The Godfather, The Poseidon Adventure, What's Up Doc, <laughs> and Deep Throat. Those oh were the my other. God, that's right. That's Those right. are the other four. Deliverance was nominated for several Academy Awards. It was up for Best Picture. It did lose to a, a little scene film called The Godfather. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was also nominated for Best Director and Best Film Editing. 
But uh, hard to beat the Godfather that year. That's a tough draw for Deliverance, wouldn't you say? Well, also what what happened there was, you know, the Godfather racked up a lot of acting, uh, supporting actor nominations, too. And that crowded out people like Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty, who were so fantastic in in Deliverance. I was I was when I look back at some of the uh, awards um, from that year um, and 1972, the, the the awards for it work in 1972 are pretty damn impressive because you, at least three of those movies that were nominated for Best Picture was The Godfather, Cabaret, and Deliverance. I would put all three of them on a list of the greatest American movies ever made. And and they all came out in 1972. Yeah, it's funny you say that. The National Board of Review um, listed it as one of the top 10 films from 1972. It was added to the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress in 2008. Uh, the film was selected by the New York Times as one of the best 1,000 movies ever made. It was a serious accolades and serious recognition there, and it's it's all you know certainly warranted. Deliverance was shot primarily in Rabin County in northeastern Georgia. Uh, following the film's release, Governor Jimmy Carter established a state film commission to encourage TV and movie production in the state of Georgia. Which, you know, years later, the state has now become one of the top five production destinations in the United States. In addition, tourism increased to Raven County by the tens of thousands after the film's release. By 2012, tourism was the largest source of revenue in that county. And rafting had developed as a $20 million industry in that region, all because of deliverance. I'm astounded by that, but I've heard that I've seen that 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 uh, factoid before, and I'm always astonished by it. It's like I guess the cruise ship business went up after Poseidon Adventure too. But I, I, living as a person who lives in Atlanta, Georgia, I will say that I mean I've lived in New York and I've done stints in LA too. I've, Atlanta is where I see more film production going on in streets and neighborhoods than in any place else I've ever lived. Warner Brothers wanted Roman Polanski to direct Deliverance. Um, James Dickey had wanted Sam Peckinpah. I guess Roman was just coming off of Macbeth and Rosemary's Baby, and Sam had just done Straw Dogs. Neither of those guys ended up directing the film and went to John Borman. But it's interesting to know that Roman Polanski was was one circle to this film. How do you feel about that? Well, I think that's fascinating, and also it's funny because when I was thinking about the the you know adult movies of of this time, I wasn't including Deep Throat in that. You mentioned it before, but the the, the serious studio films meant for adults, and I always think about Chinatown in that same way. And of course, Chinatown was directed by Polanski. And Chinatown, the one thing that's interesting thematically to me, it just occurred to me as I was thinking about this like earlier today even is that Chinatown is also about there's a there's a theme a sub theme in Chinatown which is about the power of of you know the importance of water and yep. and, and and trying to tame it and own it and 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 leverage it and 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 deliverance deals with the same thing and and it, even a completely different era completely different type of story but about how how this power and water and men and and masculinity all kind of converge um in both chinatown and deliverance i think i think polanski would have done a great job with this movie it done knife in the water which is not which is also a kind of waterborne you know thriller like he would have done great peck and would have done great too but but straw dogs is very much has a lot of the same themes that deliverance has about masculinity and savagery and civilized man coming against quote unquote, savage man. And uh, it's very, it's very similar. John Borman suggests that damming a river is almost like a sin against nature. 
um, when he's discussing the film's ecological content. He said, to almost kill the flow of a river and turn it into still water is a horrible thing to do, but we do it. It's a sin that, you know, I guess within the, the movie's metaphorical framework, Bobby in particular pays the price for. We're going to get into that a little bit later when we get into some of the themes in the film. But let's talk about the casting real quick. Um, a, a murderer's row of, of great actors at the time. John Voight plays Ed, who is, you know, theoretically the, you know, I guess the protagonist in the film. He's the lead, the lead character. Um, Burt Reynolds plays Lewis. Uh, Ronnie Cox plays Drew. And Ned Beatty plays Bobby. James Dickey also um, had considered Gene Hackman to play Ed. Um, and John Borman wanted Lee Marvin to once play that role. Uh, Borman also wanted Marlon Brando to play Lewis, which ultimately went to, to Burt Reynolds. And actually, Jack Nicholson was also considered for the role of Ed, uh, while both Donald Sutherland and Charlton Heston both turned down the role of Lewis. So clearly... Um, some major talent were circled for both Ed and Lewis. Isn't that great? Yeah, I I read a little bit about. I knew a little bit about this about the 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 lot of the discussions about casting and 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 one of the, the things that had come up when you know Borman had worked with Lee Marvin in in Point Blank and it, you know they've had some they had had some successes together and I don't know whether Lee Marvin said it to him or 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 Charlton Heston said it to him but it was like you should be casting younger people. And this is about, this is not necessarily about older men. This is about younger men, not young men, but younger men. And, um, you know, and, and that they, 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 they shifted all the casting to go younger after people like Marvin and Heston either couldn't do it or passed on it. And that's one of the reasons that led them to, and, and Brando, the same thing, but that's one of the reasons that led them to Nicholson, who would have been great and perfect. I thought it was amazing that they picked they picked Burt Reynolds because he wasn't, I mean, he, prior to deliverance, I mean, he'd been, he'd done TV stuff and he wasn't necessarily thought of as a serious actor at the time. And he's brilliant in the movie. Um, Voight was coming probably the biggest star because he was coming off of Midnight Cowboy where he, I think got Oscar nominated in the film one best picture. And he was a, a serious, serious star, you know, rising star. Beatty and, and Ronnie Cox were, I think, relatively newcomers to, to film. I think they came from stage work and, and television television and stuff. And I don't think they were, they were, they were big signings, but, um, Voight was, was, you know, sort of top drawer and, and Reynolds was well known at least. Yeah. What I, what I find interesting, Scott, and maybe you picked up on this when you watched it as well, is that this movie, when you watch it, it doesn't look like it could have been, you know, inexpensive to shoot. I mean, there's hardly any interiors in this film. There's a couple mm -hmm. of interiors at the very end, you know, when the guys get back and like, there's a scene at, you know, this halfway house and things like that. But this whole film is exteriors. And, you know, I can't imagine that was cheap to do in, in the early 70s. So this film is infamous for the cost cutting by Warner Brothers. I guess Warner Brothers was not high on this film. Uh, and they were, I guess, reportedly going out of their way to try to kind of just like undermine this film at any chance they had. So they actually had the actors perform their own stunts. Burt Reynolds requested to have one scene reshot with himself in the canoe rather than the dummy that they were going to use when, when the canoe tumbles over the, the waterfall. So Burt Reynolds recalled that he hit his shoulder and he hit his head hitting rocks as he floated downstream with all of his clothes tor torn off and that he wakes up with director John Borman at his bedside. And Reynolds asks him, how does, how did it look? And Borman says, it looked like a dummy falling over a waterfall. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty awesome. Uh, I knew that they had uh, put the cast through um, several weeks of of rafting training and stuff because they were going to do their own stunts. I, I think it's what I think it's one of the things that's 
kind of extraordinary when you see the film now is you realize, wow, they're like, there's no CGI in this film. I mean, they're really like out there in the middle of these rapids and, and it looks, it looks, I think that adds to the, um, you know, sort of the, the, the visceral thrills of the movie, but also the tension because I'm like, Oh my God, they're really, they're really out there and doing that stuff. Um, there's, I have a little, I have a little bit of trivia though, related to this, you know, the scene where, uh, this is a spoiler if you haven't seen the film, but where, when they come across Ronnie Cox and his, and his, uh, you know, arm and shoulder are so, sort of all bent out of shape. Yep. Um, that was not a special effect. Ronnie Cox can dislocate his shoulder. And he, he, he was like, he was doing it as a party trick and like Borman or somebody was like, Oh my God, we're going to use that in the film. So I thought that was pretty wild. I can't believe that he can actually bend his body that way. There's a, there's a line earlier in the film that Burt Reynolds says as Lewis, when he says insurance, I've never been insured in my life. I don't believe in insurance. There's no risk. And I find it really interesting that um, the four main actors in the movie perform their own stunts without insurance protection. Oh my God. That's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. I am shocked at that. I, uh, that would never be allowed today. And I'm, um, and they and they made that decision just because Warner Brothers was pinching pennies on the film. I guess. I mean, they were they were down on the film, and I guess they they just thought they could save money by not having to hire stuntmen in a movie that clearly must have needed stuntmen. So it's really interesting that they required the actors to do all their own stunts. Um, so apparently, one quick thing on James Dickey, which I found interesting. I don't know much about him as an author. He's a great writer, but um, while they were filming, I guess one of the big canoe scenes on the rapids. Um, he showed up. He showed up on set inebriated, and he got. He was super drunk. He got into a bitter argument with John Borman, and I guess they allegedly had a brief fist fight. And I think Borman had his nose broken, right? And he had four teeth shattered. And they threw James Dickey off the set, but no charges were filed. And uh, I guess the two reconciled days later and became really good friends. And he actually gave James Dickey a cameo at the end of the movie. He plays the sheriff. I think James Dickey is very effective in that cameo too. I didn't realize that was him until after I had seen the film and, and I went back and uh, watched that part of it. I was like, wow, Dickey's really effective uh, in that scene. But I did hear that there was, a, it was a sort of a brawling kind of um, set, but I, you know, I have to believe when you make a film like this, that's about these issues, you are definitely going to get into it. You're definitely going to be like, there was a lot of testosterone on that set. There was a lot of testosterone going into making this movie. I think this was, this was probably like very rough. Yeah. Ronnie Cox has this great quote about uh, James Dickey said the problem with Dickey, he's a wonderful poet and novelist. And he had written the screenplay obviously, but he had also a mammoth ego and wanted to run everything. I guess he really wanted to direct the picture. He really wanted to be in charge of everything. Uh, James Dickey's talents go a long, long way before it runs out of gas, but it does run out of gas and it runs out of gas just short of knowing how to make a film. So it became very problematic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but think about, think about what they were asking everybody to do physically too. I mean, they were asking them to ride the rapids. They were, they had cameras out there on the water, I'm sure all over the place. They were, I mean, I can't, when I was watching, I was like, oh my God, you know, today you would shoot this like on a studio in front of a green screen and you would have stunts and you would fix it all in, you know, post and you, you would just do something very different, but this was like an outward bound project. And it was like, and, and just given the themes that they were dealing with about 
you know, about men testing themselves and trying to transcend who they are and everything. It must have just been an incredible head trip for everybody. And then even people, you know, the collection of actors involved, Burt Reynolds was a former football player, you know, like college football player and sort of macho sex symbol guy and, you know, John Voight and his stuff and Ronnie Cox. Yeah, the, the four men are so different. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by our good friends at The Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. You know, I have to admit something. I have become that guy who basically uses social media to simply post pictures of my dogs. It's true. Sure, I may plug this podcast across social time to time and have been known to express my disappointment in another unwanted Hollywood reboot. I can't believe they are remaking Roadhouse. But let's be honest, what I enjoy doing most is posting adorable pictures of my two boxers. And most of those photos feature my girls lounging on their waffle beds. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. And the beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. We all love our dogs, and if you like watching them sleep just like I do, get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night, which should make you sleep better at night. But nobody wants to see a photo of you sleeping. Just your dog, okay? You can order them at waffleco.com, just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Buy one today and use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount off your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the show. Burt Reynolds. So he's on the record as saying that it's the best film he's ever been in. I probably would agree with that. I mean, I haven't seen everything that he's done, but um, do you think this is the best film he's ever been in? You know, I'm a big lover of Boogie Nights. I think Boogie Nights is a great film, yep. and I think I think Reynolds is extraordinary in it. Uh, but in terms of being the leading role, a leading character, absolutely, I think it's the best thing Burt Reynolds has ever done. It's it's the it's the most ever demanded of him in a way as a like as a complex man who's 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 really dealing with his inner you know demons and 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 trying to craft his his uh his masculinity um as a as a very self-styled very deliberate alpha male and so he's it's a really interesting part it was way more interesting than i thought uh, that I that I had remembered it when I revisited it, maybe from a much older man's uh, vantage point. I think he's great in it. I, I agree. I mean, there's like a ferociousness to his character in this film. Like I, it's funny. I was a kid of the '70s, right? So like I grew up watching Smokey and the Bandit. I grew up watching Cannibal Run and all the the lame sequels that those movies spawned. And like when I saw this movie as a as a 20 year old, and I saw Burt Reynolds in this really serious, really striking performance, very muscular performance, I was like sort of blown away that I, that I realized that that's the reason why Burt Reynolds wasn't Smokey and the Bandit and Cannibal Run. Cause he had this career that I didn't know as a little kid that he, he was doing more important fare before that. I, I know the latter Burt Reynolds when he was making schlocky 
you know, action movies like Sharky's Machine and stuff like that. But he clearly had a career before that. If you were to, to, to look, try to look for a more complete Burt Reynolds, I, I would tell people to see Deliverance. But I would also tell people to watch The Longest Yard, which I think is a great film. And I yep. think he's great in it. Um, and, you know, in even the, the Smokey and the Bandits. And of course, I'd end with Boogie Nights because I think he's uh, just wonderful in it. There's a lot at play in this film. This is a movie that opens up with this really beautiful, entertaining music sequence with with Ronnie Cox playing the banjo with this little kid. Um, and it really sets a lighthearted tone, but things change real quickly, real fast in this film. And that's just something that is very jarring when you watch it. I mean, I think from the very beginning of the movie, they're 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 like sort of planting the seeds that 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 what they're enga- about to be engaged in is somewhat unholy. Like like we're, let's go on this river before it gets destroyed. Let's go like let's go and like uh, these people, you know, this the othering of the 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 quote unquote hillbillies. The that that moment of connection in what he what Ronnie Cox's character thinks is connection over the dueling of you know the duet on a banjo that is the dueling banjos moment that turns out to not be a connection at all that you know they're really like it's it's a it is a horror show i mean it is like they are under undercutting you every step of the way so so as you watch the film i think right from the very beginning you're 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 feel you're starting to Filled with a sense of dread. Yeah, I mean, like even when when they finish playing the banjos and and Ronnie Cox and everybody's sort of clapping and and you in the audience are probably clapping too. But like he goes up to the kid and he's like, you know, goddamn, you play a mean banjo, and he sticks his hand out to shake the kid's hand, and the kid kind of turns his turns away from him and he doesn't make eye contact with him. And then like Ned Beatty comes over and he's like, you know, give him a couple bucks, you know, you know, give him some money or something like it just sort of, it sort of brings you back from like, you know, all is not well with this child, but all is not well in this situation. And uh, it's really interesting when you, this, this movie has all kinds of moments like that, that um, there's an interesting little touch about like at the end when they show the church and the graves being relocated because they know that the, the flooding is coming into this area and that they need to move all these things that you wouldn't be thinking about. They're digging up all these, these dead bodies because you know, it's all going to get flooded out. It's uh, it's, it's really fascinating. And I would also say there's incredible sound design in this film. This is a cliche, but it's a movie that really does take you on a journey and, and you go, you go with them on it. It's not like, it's like one of my favorite movies is apocalypse now. And you're on a a downriver journey there too. But, but that is a larger than life journey. This is an inherently, you know, life-sized and, and all the more horrifying because of that journey, you can absolutely think of yourself as getting caught up in this kind of, outdoor adventure with people who are almost shaming you into doing it. And, and then suddenly, you know, you know, be going over the deep end. So I, I, um, yeah, I, I, I have to say that in, in, in revisiting it, I was, I was more impressed with it than ev- any other time I've seen it because I was thinking of it from a lot of different angles, including how did they make such a thing? I mean, one of the takes I read when I sort of did my deep dive on this film is that one would argue that it was considered the first eco thriller Mm -hmm. that, you know, obviously it has an ecological message. This, this notion of the destruction of the natural world has consequences for everyone, right? Here are these guys from Atlanta that are utilizing the power to their, you know, to their benefit in their, in their easy lives in the big city. But that power has to come from somewhere. That's heavy stuff, Scott, for a movie uh, people want to go see on a on a Saturday night. 
I think probably people responded to it because, as you mentioned earlier, it was a box office hit and and it wasn't the type of thing that would normally be a box office hit, given, you know, the, the type of film it was. And, you know, always you wonder about like, well, well, will couples go to see this movie? So was this four guys on a guy's weekend trip? Are men going to see this movie or women going to like who's going to go? People were going to see the movie because it was for adults and it was considered a serious thing. And that was a time when movies for adults were a thing. They weren't just relegated to streaming services and becoming limited series or whatever. I mean, they were like things you would get a babysitter and go out to see. Machines are going to fail. And the system's going to fail. Then? And then what? Then survival. Who has the ability to survive? That's the game. Survival. And you can't wait for it to happen, can you? You can't wait for it. Well, the system's done all right by me. Oh, yeah. You get a nice job. Got a nice house. Nice wife. Nice kid. You make that sound rather shitty, Lewis. Why do you go on these trips with me, Ed? I like my life, Lewis. Yeah, but why do you go on these trips with me? You know, sometimes I wonder about that. I mean, like Burt Reynolds' character is what I would call an extremist, right? And he spends a lot of time early in the film talking about... um, how, you know, the machines are going to fail and, and the system is going to fail and that, you know, you have to play the game. And, and, and when things go bad for these guys, when they all they all get in the big accident towards the end and Bert breaks his leg and and they're stuck in the water, like he says something to Ned Beatty about or to, to John Boy, it's time to play the game, you know, and uh, and that obviously leads to, you know, John Boyd's character having to climb the hill to try to get these guys some kind of help and uh, or at the very least try to get rid of the other guy that's up there that might be shooting at him right now. And it, I mean, it's, it's fascinating that he talks about having to play the game earlier in the, in the film. And then all of a sudden they have to. One of my favorite quotes from the movie is that quote about machines will fail. Systems will fail. All that's left really is to survive that idea. That concept was, is, has been so fertile for Hollywood. I mean, they've used it a lot. That cyst, that technology will not be the answer to things. The overall systems will fail. Things will go wrong. I mean, don't forget, this is the same year that Westworld came out, the original Westworld with with Yul Brenner. Yep. And that was about that, you know, about giving into your fantasies and they go wrong. Um, and because technology turns against you. And and this idea that, you know, indulging in your fantasies and your notions of, of heroism and everything was folly and then would ultimately lead to maybe your destruction or at the least your brutalization. That is, that was a very, very, very powerful theme back in 1972. I think it's still a powerful theme in, in, in film and television today. Do you think that the film is arguing that like you sort of need to become what you hate? Cause like in the beginning of the film, Ed, John Voigt, he sort of, he doesn't agree with Lewis on Lewis's, you know, worldview. Right. And however, you know, he's also sort of exhilarated by it. Like he doesn't respect it, but at the same time, he's oddly intrigued by it. And then all of a sudden he obviously goes through this 
sort of catharsis and he has to maybe more of a transformation when he's climbing the the mountain at the end and he's got to try to, I guess, kill this guy that's up there that's shooting at him. Um, I think yeah. the, it's sort of like a spiritual and, and I guess maybe physical transformation for the character, wouldn't you say? I, I think related to this is the movie is about how vulnerable um, men feel about their masculinity. Yep. And, and Lewis is challenged. Lewis is baiting them throughout the Lewis is Burt Reynolds character. And he's baiting them all the time because he's the most outwardly self-styled, like, like macho guy. I mean, he's an outdoorsman and he wears a vest and yeah. see his muscle. He's like spouting all these aphorisms about how, you know, how you got to be tough and all that kind of stuff. And so Lewis is kind of like the proto, you know, the alpha guy and all the rest of them feel vaguely emasculated by him. And, and through the course of what goes on, I mean, there's a literal emasculation almost with what happens to Ned Beatty's character, but there is, they're, they're, they're plunged into this situation where they have to prove their masculinity. And, um, that is also something that makes the movie both incredibly uncomfortable and incredibly riveting. Um, when you're watching these men who like, who say, they say in the movie, I like my life. I'm a, like the, the implication, I'm a successful man. And Lewis doesn't buy it. Lewis, uh, Burt Round's character doesn't buy it. He's like, you don't even know what that is because you have not really been tested and then they are tested. So I just think that's why one of the things why I think the movie is so incredible. Let's talk about the rape scene. First time that I saw this film, I had no idea that that scene was coming. Like I, you know, all of a sudden, you know, when, you know, John Voigt and Ned Beatty pull off to take a breather out of their canoe and, and they're a little bit ahead of the other two and uh, they're in a separate canoe and these guys get off to the side and all of a sudden they are, you know, they're, you know, Ned Beatty's character is raped by these two hillbillies and, and they tie John Voight up to a tree to make him watch it. And, and it's graphic and it's intense. It's awkward and powerful. And to this day, I don't think I've ever seen a sequence in a film like this and can't imagine back then that was something that was shown on film quite a bit. Right. Oh, oh no, I think. And I think that's one of the reasons that's one of the things that really was uh, boundary breaking about this film, but also it wasn't done. I mean, it was so, tied to the themes of the film that I don't recall. And, and I, and even in, in, in reading about the film after the fact, I don't recall people feeling that that was uh, exploitative or any, or anything. I think people felt it was, it was tied to the themes of the film. So they, they went there, um, but it was completely shocking. I do have to admit that that, that, that first time I saw the film, or like sneaking up to watch it late at night on HBO I didn't expect that scene to come. I knew that there was some scene of, of violence that was vaguely, you talked about as sexual violence. I had no idea what was going on because I, I was like, where would that come in as I'm watching it? And then that sequence happens and I could not, I, I couldn't get it out of my head because it was so horrifying. Um, and, and every time I've seen the movie, that scene completely stays with me. It, it, there's a lot of reasons for that. And I think I, I look at that scene differently every single time I see that scene, but you know, the conversation about what is rape is rape, a sex, uh, you know, a sexual violation, or is it a power trip or is it both? Is it, this is a scene where rape is used as a humiliation and, and it is, it's, it, it's just, it's, I, it's so gut wrenching. And, it, and I think the way Borman shot it, is so brilliant 
that you know it's shot it's it's shot pretty much in in long shot and but we absolutely know what's going on we can absolutely see what's happening and it is just I, I think people watch that se- sequence with their, you know, just, uh, uh, you know, just with a look of horror on their face and you can't, if there is nothing uh, that you can do to, to, to do, you know, while it's going on, except sort of witness it. And um, I think it's a traumatic, it's one of those scenes if people say, well, what's, you know, is it trauma in the movies? I'm like, that is a, that's a trauma that scene of trauma is trauma for the audience. Yeah. It's like, I remember watching it and again, it was a college audience, but like you could hear a pin drop. I mean, it was, it's just one of those, um, I have to say it's probably one of the most powerful sequences in a film that I've ever seen. It's not comfortable to watch clearly, but, um, and I do, and you mentioned this earlier, I think Ned Beatty, this might've been one of his very first feature films. It might've been his first feature film. And, And for him to actually play this character and to have to, you know, you know, do that sequence. Not, not an easy thing to ask of an actor. I thought about that a lot and I I've seen interviews with him about it and everything. And obviously he transcended. He's not only known for that scene. I mean, just a couple of years later in network, he's absolutely brilliant and does this incredible job in the film. Like he, he, he had an extraordinary career, but wow. I mean, there's a lot of bravery there. And I wonder, I did think like, boy, if I were Ned Beatty's agent and he was offered this, I'd like, I don't know what I would say. But he started as a theater actor, so I think he would always took his craft very seriously. He recognized that this was an extraordinary character and an extraordinary situation and probably be an extraordinary film. I mean, it sounded like Warner Brothers wanted Borman to direct that sequence in two ways. They wanted to shoot it two different ways. You may have read this as well, like one for the cinematic release uh, and one that I guess would have been acceptable for TV. And and Borman was like, screw that, not, not going to do that at all. Um, and, uh, so they obviously shot it the, w- the way they did. But I found interesting is like Burt Reynolds said that, um, when they were shooting that sequence that it was so uncomfortable that the cameramen were, were avoiding it. Like they weren't even trying to watch it. And, and finally, I guess Burt Reynolds opted to interrupt the filming and he went up to John Borman and he said something like, you know, why, why are you letting this go as long as you are? You know, we need to, you know, we need to stop. This is enough. And I guess Borman said something like, I wanted to take it as far as I could with the audience. I marvel at the sequence now because I, it's one of the, one of there's, there's several things that happen in the film or several moments that happen in the film that I do question. Like if this movie were being made today, would, would this sequence be in there in, in here in this way? Would we trust the audience to know what to do with this? Would we, you know, are we going into territory that should never be seen on film? And it's, it's, it's interesting to me that, that this was a mainstream, a major studio, a mainstream Hollywood release. Um, one of the big, one, you know, one of the bigger movies that was coming out that year was this film of James Dickey's book deliverance, which was a bestseller. So that's one of the reasons why, and it was still like a vestige of the Warner brothers when Warner, it was like Warner brothers, seven arts. And they were, they were known for a, like, really high quality adult films too. Burt Reynolds has this great quote about, about the, the sequence. And then we can, we could certainly move on from it, but he says that women get this movie much quicker than men. Um, which is interesting because this is not a film that I think women are lining up to necessarily watch, but women also understand, you know, for so many years, men threw the word rape around and never thought about what they were saying. And I think the picture makes men think about something that's very important that we understand the pain and embarrassment and the change of people's lives. You know, there, there's a constant conversation in in film adaptations of books 
when the book has a scene that's notorious, that will will this if we include this scene the way it with as much power as it has in the book, will it just come to define the film and overwhelm everything else in the film because visualizing it might be too much. And I give Borman credit because he wanted to because he wanted to 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 to, to treat it boldly and and honestly but at the same time i'm sure he didn't want it to define the film so you know he he just went for it it's um again it's it's i am so curious about if this were like premiering on you know well first of all it was premiering today it'd be like a netflix original or like it there's just no way it would have gone into the theater no and i wonder what people would say about it it makes me sad that we would never be able to see a movie like this in the theater today. So listen, you know, Lewis and, and um, Drew show up a little bit later and they realize something's going on. And, and there's this great long shot, Scott, of the viewpoint of John Voight. And he's looking over towards, towards the water and you see Lewis holding the bow and arrow. Right. And you as a viewer, Scott, like you're literally on the edge of your seat. And I, I don't necessarily root for death a lot for people and for characters in films, but like, you know, what shot I'm talking about. You, it, it, it's a great shot that Borman has where it's like through the trees, it's a little bit blurry and you see Bert holding the arrow and like, and you just like are on the edge of your seat and you are waiting for him to fire. And, and he fires yeah. and he fires and he kills, he kills that guy right away. And the other guy sort of gets, he gets chased off and he runs into the woods, but like, what a what an incredible what a like what a crucial death in cinema is what I would say like and there's obviously scores of famous movie deaths right but that death and that sequence of deliverance is powerful stuff yeah I mean I think that this was also I mean a thing that was happening you know starting to emerge in in American cinema in this time I mean because Peck and Paw's Straw Dogs has a very similar thing where you are rooting for the the quote unquote hero of the film to start like killing people <laughs> um, because they're, they're bad guys. And um, you see it in like one of those popular movies of that time. It was two years after De- deliverance was death wish with, with Bronson, Charles Bronson as a vigilante taking, taking revenge on, you know, the, 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 the men who, who brutalized his, his wife and daughter, a shock again, probably they gave deliverance is uh Success probably encouraged, uh, I think Paramount was the, the studio behind Death Wish, to be okay with a, a similarly brutal rape scene. Um, and I, I do think that, you remember remember the time also, it was 1972, 73, audiences were seeing the movie. We were at the, the height of protests against the Vietnam War. Lots of discussions about who's a good guy, who's a bad guy, what are we forcing men to do to defend are their way of life. And I think this was in the air. I think there was a lot of discussion about that. It wasn't, you know, uh, remember Lewis, Burt Reynolds character is doing this with a bow and arrow. He doesn't have a gun. You know, he's, he's, it's, it's about, you know, that kind of primal kind of ways of defending your turf or taking revenge or, you know, making war. And um, that's what ultimately what happens as the movie goes along. They just become much more kind of basic and savage, I guess. This sequence is a turning point in this movie, and it goes in an entirely different direction after this. And there's a couple lines that I want to play from that sequence right after Burke kills um, one of the mountain men, where they start talking about what they need to do. So let's let's play this sequence right here. Anybody know anything about the law? 
Look, I, I was on jury duty once. Run the murder trial. Murder trial? Well, I don't know the technical word for it, Drew. But I know this. You take this man down out of the mountains and turn him over to the sheriff, there's going to be a trial, all right. Trial by jury. So what? We killed a man, Drew. Shot him in the back. A mountain man. Cracker. Gives us something to consider. All right. Consider it. We're listening. Shit, all these people are related. But goddamn, if I want to come back up here and stand trial with this man's aunt and his uncle, maybe his mom and his daddy sitting in the jury box. Now you listen, Lewis. I don't know what you've got in mind, but if you try to conceal this body, you're setting yourself up for a murder charge. Now that much law I do know. This ain't one of your fucking games. You killed somebody. There he is. I see him, Drew. That's right, I killed somebody. You're wrong if you don't see this as a game. Lewis, are you listening? Damn, we can get out of this thing without any questions asked. We get connected up with that body and the law. This thing's going to be hanging over us the rest of our lives. We got to get rid of that guy. What I would say about that sequence, Scott, there's like this fascinating moral dilemma that these characters now face, right? Because like they're sitting around, they've got this dead body, you know, laying against the branch. And now they got to figure out, all right, our weekend plans have gone awry. We've just killed somebody. And clearly, you know, Bert's character wants to, you know, bury the body and, and get out of there. They think they can make a clean getaway. Ronnie Cox's character thinks thinks otherwise. He thinks that they need to do things by the book, and he's optimistic that the local authorities will believe their story that they were they were you know violated and attacked. And Lewis is like, listen, if we if this thing goes to trial, we're we're in big trouble. Yeah, and I and again, I think there is a, a it's interesting to to watch that sequence now and realize that if that scene were being shot today. They would there would be somebody there to make jokes about it, or there would be some kind of irony, in, you know, introduced or whatever. There would be all sorts of other ways of doing it. And Borman and the script and Dickie's original work just stick to the basic dilemma and how these men have boxed themselves into something, you know, terrible, and they have to figure out how to get themselves out of it. There's no, like, jokey, self-referential things. There's no ironic asides. Nothing. It is just the moment, just the dilemma, just the panic that, that's setting in as they realize they have fallen They have fallen into the pit, basically. I I think this is where the movie really becomes extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, like, I, when I watch it, I, I don't know what I would want to do in that situation, right? Like, I'm obviously grateful that I'm not in that situation, but these guys, you know, obviously it was an accident and they were defending themselves. And you would like to think that the police would believe that, that, you know, these guys were attacked and maybe they shouldn't have been where they shouldn't have been. But at the same time, you know, self-defense is, 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 a, is a clear argument there. But 
Burt Reynolds' character is kind of making the point that if this thing goes to trial, all these people up in the mountains, they're all related, right? Which is a whole other stereotype that this film sort of sort of unveils. But like this notion of like, I don't want to be in in a trial with this with this guy's mommy and daddy in the jury box, as he calls it. Um, fascinating stuff, because I, I don't know in that moment what I would do. Well, that's I mean, I think that's a sort of an eternal dilemma that's in film uh, that, that's presented in film. You know, did you you know, are you all going to be damned? Uh, you're all going to, can yep. you get away with it? And uh, yeah, I like the way this film deals with it because the group of people debating it, it's not a group of like a, a trying to be a, a microcosm of society or anything. It's four guys who are friends. And so they are, you know, uh, they're grappling with their own issues and their collective issues as a group of friends. And um the, some of the stuff that's introduced very early on in the film that, you know, that, that they feel maybe, maybe not, not Lewis, but everybody else feels vaguely guilty about like, ah, you know, we're, we're treading into other people's land. And I know we're doing, we're shooting the rapids, even though we're like, you know, posers, yeah. we don't really know how to do this. Like all the stuff that they're like, they've sort of almost been, they've almost been like uh guilted into doing this a, a adventure anyway. And, and, you know, they're, they're all, they're all like sort of egging each other on in a way to even take this, this adventure. And I don't think any of them except for Lewis really even wants to be there, but they do it anyway. Once they decide to bury the body, bury the evidence and, and make a getaway, you know, they, they get back in their canoes and, and Drew wants nothing to do with this. He's, he's gone through a, a sort of a mental breakdown at this point. He's, he doesn't even know what he's doing and where he is. They, they shoot some more rapids and then all of a sudden, you know, he falls out of the boat. Burt Reynolds thinks that he was shot by the other guy that ran away uh, from earlier. And uh, you as a viewer, you're not quite sure if that's actually what happened or not. Did he just have a mental breakdown? Did he just fall out of the boat or was he shot? And that leads to clearly, you know, John Voight having to climb the mountain at the end of the film when the, these guys are trapped in that gorge and, and uh, and you get up there and he actually does end up, you know, you know, killing that other guy. But there's a there's a moment right there when he kills him and he's not sure if this was the guy from earlier. And, you know, he's looking right. at his mouth. He's looking at his the fake teeth and you're not quite sure. And like even to, even with the way the film ends, when you walk out of the theater, you're not sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're haunted a little bit, too. I mean, the characters are all haunted by what happens. You're haunted by it. Um I, I would just, you know, make this, take this moment to say, you know, for those of you who are listening, if you haven't seen the film and we're talking about the themes and the motifs and, you know, the, the issues it brings up, the bottom line on, on, on deliverance though, it is really well-crafted. It works as a piece of, 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 as almost like a, 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 a white knuckle thriller too. It really does work that way. So all these other things are there and you will find them and you will think about them for days on end afterwards. But the experience of watching the movie, the two hours you're watching the film, it's, it's riveting. It is really, really, really outstanding film. There's not a, not a, not a moment in that movie that I would have cut. And, and uh, you know, they, it's just, it's just beautifully made. Yeah. And I, I think that's why I always, I, as I said at the beginning of this, where I, I get annoyed about the, you know, the stereotype that this film has, and it's been made fun of so many times and, you know, the dueling banjo music and the people automatically think, Oh, it's Ned Beatty. It's the rape. And, and again, for the different themes that we're talking about here, there's just so much more at play in this film. And if you are a, a, a true film lover, you, if you just stop and revisit this film, you'll, you'll see it's, it's enormously rewarding on multiple levels beyond 
you know, the, the harrowing sequence, which is what it's known for, but there's just a lot more uh, to really marvel and enjoy as a, as a film lover. Um, you know, I, I do, I do find it interesting that I, I, I often wonder, was this movie responsible for kind of creating the whole hillbilly stereotype that is, that is, you know, that's pretty commonplace in, in film and TV since then, but I'm not, I'm not old enough to, to know that because I was too young when this movie came out. So I don't know if that was really a thing before deliverance or not. I, you know, I don't really, I mean, there, I think I did a little investigating of this because I think I'm, I'm, I'm kind of interested. I mean, the, 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 one of the genres that sort of emerged over the years has been, you know, backwoods horror and, and deliverance is always listed as one of the movies that sort of inspired it. Yep. Um, I, uh, it's a, that deliverance is a very literary film and it's because it has literary origins. It was written by a poet, James Dickey. Um, it, it's, it's more, um, you know, there's a lot more going on there, but, but the depiction of that, the world of, you know, like sort of the hillbillies in this, in this case, or people who lived in, in very, very rural communities like Appalachia or whatever, yep. uh, the North mountains that, I think I, there were examples of, of movies that depicted th- those characters. I think that Deliverance was because it took its themes so seriously and it took those sequences so, so seriously, I think probably did. Uh, and it was so successful that it probably did inspire a lot of writers and filmmakers to go, well, I could write a horror story about something that goes terribly wrong in, in the backwoods of, you know, name your name, your city. I mean, Straw Dogs, though is also frequently listed as a backwards uh, horror genre, uh, star, uh, you know, kind of foundational work. And that was Peck and Paw's version a year before Deliverance about, you know, so-called civilized man uh, encountering savagery and uh, what he has to do to, uh, you know, defend himself. And so it's, it's very similar, although the, the, the quote-unquote hillbillies there are basically in, like, rural England. What is it that you think was that struck a chord with audiences in 1972 that made this film as successful as it was? Well, I think that there was a, there was a couple of things going on here. And, and a lot of it has to do with the, the, the changing nature of going to the movie theater. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the, the audience there – there was a sizable chunk of the film-going audience – that was making, you know, very conscious decisions about what were the important films to see that year. And they would go to see movies like, you know, The Conversation and The Godfather, was it bigger? or, you know, um, Chinatown, or those kind of films that were movies that they had read about and heard about that were supposed to be very good. Remember, Deliverance was based on a pretty big bestseller at a time when, more literary bestsellers were totally part of the, you know, like, like maybe uh, this fall was like where the crawdads sing, but, but that was pitched to a different audience. But I mean, a literary bestseller being turned into a big movie with, with, you know, some hot stars with some great reviews would have, would have brought out, you know, couples like middle-aged couples, younger people, like film going was something that wasn't being driven and the studio decisions weren't being driven by what will 18 to, to, to 24 year olds want to yep. see. And, and there was no social media. So, so the people chattering about what a great movie was were film critics and journalists and entertainment reporters. And they were writing about this incredibly well-received 
big movie from big studio with Burt Reynolds and John Voight in it. And those were the only, the, and it got incredible reviews. This is a solid movie. Like this is a movie. If this were released today, maybe like a 24 would, would release it and, and go for a nice solid, Let's get, I guess in today's dollars, that would probably be a $120 million grossing movie. So very successful, but a prestige movie. This is one of those movies that is prestigious. And um, I think it's the fact that under today's business models and the way we live and technology and everything, literally this movie, if if a movie like this were made, it would be made for like Netflix or HBO. And it would be... um, a pers- it would be there to get Oscar nominations and um, not necessarily to get, you know, to drive big, big things. But it, remember, it did start as a bestseller. I mean, Deliverance was a big bestseller. Yeah. I mean, I, you said something about social media earlier, and I think it would be interesting if a movie like this came out today with, with, with the rape sequence being the, the centerpiece of it. How would you be able to keep that quiet in the, in the world of social media today? I mean, it would probably be nearly impossible, right? I mean, it would be one of those films that you would need to try to go see. And I know that sometimes studios try to encourage the press and whatnot to avoid, you know, giving out spoilers. But for a film like this, man, you would have to see this thing right out of the gate. Otherwise you would find out about it so fast. Well, also the other big thing would be that the casting would be completely different. The casting equation would have been different. They'd go for four people, probably one that was an established film star, one that was established TV star, one that was a YouTube influencer making their film debut. (laughs) One was, you know, like all of the casting would have been completely different. And somebody plucked from regional theater would not have been in the role that like Ned Beatty got. You know, we didn't know Ned Beatty. If we had already known him and known it and people could have, you know, loved him from something else he did or was on that series or that thing, it would have been a very different response, I think, to that sequence. And it would have been a different discussion. I, I, um, yeah, I don't know what the equivalent would be today. I really don't. I mean, people will talk all the time about shocking sequences they'll see in something like White Lotus or, or something. And I love all of that stuff. I watch it. I love it. I think it's great. It's not the same as taking that trip to a movie theater, sitting with a group of adults in the dark and taking a journey like this. I, I want to thank you for indulging me, for letting me talk about this movie for an hour, an hour and change. Ah. Um, when, I, when I, when I was thinking I about doing, doing deliverance, it was obviously on my list. I'm like, man, I want to do an episode about deliverance. And I was telling myself that's stupid. No one's going to listen to it. And which is probably the case. But then I said to myself, who would I bring on to, that would be willing to talk about it. And you were like the first thing that I came up with. So I, I, I thank you for that because I, I knew that you would be into it, but I have some homework for you. So one, two things. One is um, there's a, there's another man versus nature film that came out within the last, I want to say maybe last 10 years. And you're going to laugh when I say what it is, because this, this actor has made a, a fortune in the latter end of his career, making schlocky action movies, but this one's different. Liam Neeson did a film called The Gray. Um, I'm not sure if you ever saw it, but it was directed by Joe Carnahan. And it came out, yeah. I want to say 2012, 2013, somewhere around there. And it's about, a, he's a, he, play, he works for an oil company and he's a, he's a guy that hunts down wolves. And he ends up, he and, he's on this plane crash. He and these guys start getting hunted down by these wolves. It's, it's awesome. It sounds like a great film. I have not seen The Grey, but I, but, but yes, I've heard great things about it. It is far more than a, a Liam Neeson action movie. In fact, I actually wouldn't even say that that's what this movie is. There's certainly some thrilling sequences to it, but this is a, 
a movie about a bunch of guys that are being stalked by wolves and, and they know they're going to lose. And, you know, he obviously ends up being like the last man standing because it's Liam Neeson. It's a Liam Neeson movie. But this movie's got really interesting themes at play and it's beautifully shot. Um, great music score. It's, it's a really, it's, uh, it's something that I think he can be really proud of. And I hope that he is. It's, uh, you'll thank me. You will text me and say the gray was very good. And then, uh, and finally, listen, I, I definitely want to have you back. So we need to do another movie at some point, but like, you know, I'm going to give you some homework and think about what film you want to talk about. So the only the only parameters I will give you is that it needs to be a movie that's in an anniversary year. I like doing anniversary years. That means that it needs to be a movie from like 73 or 78 or 83 or 88. So, you know, anything that's uh, it's going to be in an anniversary year, feel free to give it some thoughts, sleep on it. Let me know what movie you would love to talk about and we'll have you back on in the new year and uh, we'll do it. Excellent. And I will give you three choices, I'm sure. So <laughs> because I could do this all the time. I love uh, the opportunity to go in depth about a film that I love. Thank you so much for your time. And I really appreciate you. Uh, I know you're a busy guy these days. We both are. So it's nice to be able to hit pause and just chat for a little bit and catch up. And uh, it's always great to see your face. I, I miss you, Scott. It was, uh, as I said earlier, man, I loved working with you. And someday I hope that our, our paths cross again professionally. But even if it's just this, that's good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, likewise, uh, sir, I have, I have enjoyed, I've enjoyed every conversation I have with you from the time we were working together through all these years subsequent to that. Um, you're, you're a fellow traveler in this, uh, in this, in this, uh, film adventure. I think that we're all living anyway. I, I have a, uh, thank you again for inviting me, Dennis. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it. it, Scott. Thank you for listening, everybody. Uh, the next episode after this, I'm bringing my brother back. Jim Kamlick is going to come on and we're going to talk about M night Shyamalan's signs, which is also, uh, in an anniversary. It's, it's only 20. It's not, not as old as deliverance, but, a movie that my brother and I both have a lot of heart for, and I imagine we're going to talk about Unbreakable as well, which I'm a massive fan of. And then I'm going to wrap up the year with my buddy Steve Cosolino, and we are going to talk about Die Hard. Scott, it's a pleasure. Thanks for being on. Thank you, everybody. We'll be back soon. First explorer saw this country. Saw it just like us. In a community. I can imagine how they felt. Yeah, we beat it, didn't we? Did we beat that? You don't beat it. Don't beat this river.